verse 10, he says, So when anyone builds a wall, behold, they will plaster it over with whitewash. So tell those who plaster it over with whitewash that it will fall. A flooding rain will come, and you, ohail, and you hailstones will fall, and a violent wind will break out. Behold, when the wall has fallen, will you not be asked, Where is the plaster with which you plastered it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a violent wind break out in my wrath. There will be also in my anger a flooding rain and hailstones to consume it in wrath. So I will tear down the wall which you have plastered over with with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation is laid bare. And when it falls, you will be consumed in its midst and you will know that I am the Lord. Thus I will spend my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered it over with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is gone and its plasterers are gone along with the prophets of Israel who prophesied to Jerusalem and who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, declares the Lord. Do you see the irony here? That because they wouldn't stand in the breach or build up the spiritual moral law of God's truth, God took down the physical walls of Jerusalem. God would wipe down the walls or wipe out the walls that they, that they whitewash, that they build up, the walls of their lies and the walls of their mistruth. And literally, physically, the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed because they wouldn't stand in the breach of the wall of God's morality. Physical collapse always follows spiritual and moral collapse. I mean, it's a certainty of history that when a country falls, when a country collapses, it has long since collapsed spiritually and morally. It always precedes the fall. And that should concern us. Matthew 7.26, Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And notice this, in chapter 13 of Ezekiel, the Lord says, I'm going to send the rain. I'm sending the storm. I will send the hailstones and the wild winds. This is all going to come from the Lord. And I don't know if there's a connection there, but as Jesus is talking about the rain falling and the floods coming and the winds blowing and slamming against the house, in some instances, that storm comes directly from the hand of God. And Jesus says, if you hear my words and you do nothing about them, you're like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And it's true for the individual. When the storms of the Lord come, they're not going to stand because they are not trusting in the Word of the Lord. And it is true For the nation, when the storms come, the nation begins to crumble and collapse because it does not, and I'm talking about Israel here, Judah, it does not subscribe to the word of the Lord. And it concerns me for our country, and I know I talk about that all the time. But ultimately, unless our hope as a nation returns not to the Constitution, but to the Christ, we will collapse. And unless my hope as an individual person is in Jesus and not in any other thing, I will collapse. It is only the foundation of Christ on which I can stand when the storms come. 1 Corinthians 3.11 No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 17 Now you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people 
who are prophesying from their own inspiration prophesy against them. And he's not calling the foolish prophets a bunch of women. He is now talking to the women. So the girls don't get off scot-free here. The foolish prophets of this day were not just men. Now we know and we recognize there are prophetesses in Scripture. In Hebrew Scripture, Miriam was a prophetess. Deborah, Huldah were all prophetesses who spoke the Word of God as God spoke through them. There were also foolish prophets or prophetesses. Noadiah was one. Probably not a name you've heard very much, but you can look her up in Nehemiah chapter 6. This false prophetess named Noadiah comes along and starts spewing all kinds of falsehood. Revelation chapter 2 verse 20 mentions another one by the name of Jezebel. So there are prophetesses in Scripture and there are false prophetesses and God deals with the false prophetesses here. Verse 18 saying, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who sow magic bands on all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature to hunt down their lives. Will you hunt down the lives of my people but preserve the lives of others for yourselves? He says, For handfuls of barley and fragments of bread you have profaned me to my people and put to death some who should not die and to keep others alive who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies. Now what's going on here? There are three things that that we see here that the false prophetesses are being accused of by the Lord. Number one is these wristbands. The King James says pillows. That's one of the rare places where the King James is kind of faulty because the word doesn't mean pillows. They're wristbands. They're like good luck amulets that these prophetesses are saying, here, wrap this around your wrist and you'll be fine. This will protect you. And of course it doesn't and someone dies. And the Lord says, you're telling them, you're going to decide who's going to live and who's going to die by handing them a magic wristband? By the way, I think you can get those wristbands at the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique at Disneyland. (laughs) The veils, the veils speak literally of long, long veils. I think the King James has a different word for that as well. But, but it's not just a face veil, but it's a veil that would run all the way down the whole body. And the whole idea behind these prophetesses wearing these long veils was there's something mysterious behind the veil. Something behind the veil that this woman, she knows something. And so it's all part of the allure and the mystery. And the handfuls of barley and fragments of bread in verse 19, two possibilities. One, some believe that it may have been used for divination, that they would literally throw handfuls of barley out to divine the the purposes of God uh, by their false prophecy. Probably more likely, um, this meant that the sorceress here, the false prophetess, was preying on poorer people. That for a handful of bread, for a little bit of barley, I'll help you out. And what was really happening is these foolish female diviners were targeting their own people and that's what God points out. Will you hunt down the lives of my people? See, God has it in for the false prophet, the false prophetess. He is not going to tolerate that. Those who would malign, those who would dissuade, those who would, who would detour His people from the truth. Those among His people. I mean, right now, this is Jew on Jew. Do we ever see Christian on Christian? Had they forgotten who they were, the false prophets, the false prophetesses? And do we ever forget who we are? Do we ever forget that we're Jesus' people? 
Every one of us. We belong to God. We are supposed to be, we are called to be signs of His glory in this age. We are witnesses to the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. But when we sin against our own people, whether it be by lies or false hopes or divisions or offering up different gospels, we do so against God's people. For me to sin against you is to sin against one of God's children. And we need to remember that. And we need to look at each other, I think, a little differently. Not so much in this fellowship. I, I was telling uh, Debbie before, and I love this fellowship. I love coming home for vacation because I like being together with you all. And this is the coolest church. And so I don't see this kind of thing going on here. But I have seen it take place. And I have seen Christians against Christians. I was like, well, wait a minute. But, hey, I, we might have issues. We might have problems. We might have disagreements. But we are both. You and I, children of the living God. We are Jesus' people and we're going to spend eternity together so we need to get over it and live for Him together. The Lord is angry that they're doing this against their own. Verse 20, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic bands by which you hunt their lives as birds and I will tear them from your arms and I will let them go, even those lives whom you hunt as birds. I can, I can hear uh, was it Ronnie Van Zant singing, I'm as free as a bird now. <laughs> Verse 21, I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people from your hands and they will no longer be in your hands to be hunted and you will know that I am the Lord because you disheartened the righteous with falsehood. Note that. You disheartened the righteous with falsehood. How'd they do that? Well, they told him some good thing was going to happen if they wore this wristband and it didn't happen. And it bummed them out. And God said, that's not okay. You disheartened the righteous with falsehood when I did not cause him grief, but have encouraged the wicked not to turn from his wicked way and preserve his life. Therefore, you women will no longer see false visions or practice divination, and I will deliver my people out of your hand. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. He says, I'm going to set all your captives free as birds. You may hunt them like birds. I'm going to free them like birds. Chapter 14, quickly, verse 1. Then some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Uh-oh. Now, we've seen previously a group of elders sitting before Ezekiel in his house when he had the the previous vision caught up to Jerusalem and back. And these guys were probably legitimately seeking godly counsel. Well, now we have some other elders whose hearts are in the wrong place, whose hearts are rocky, roadside, or, or weeded, or weedy. And now they're coming to Ezekiel for counsel. Yeah, we're going... Because right now, Ezekiel's word is starting to be accepted to a degree. There's a certain amount of acclaim because he said some things and they did take place and people are saying, oh, got Ezekiel's he's in touch with God. So these elders whose hearts are not right are saying, well, we got to get in on this. We need a little PR here, so let's go talk to Ezekiel. And they show up there thinking they can hide what's going on in the heart and God reads them like a book. 
Verse 4, Therefore speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, Any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols. In other words, I'll answer him. You coming to me for counsel? I got some counsel for him. In order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent! And turn away from your idols. And turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the immigrants who stay in Israel who separates himself from me sets up his idols in his heart. Puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself. I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb and I will cut him off from among my people so you will know that I am the Lord. These elders were suffering from what you could call severe cardio hypocrisy. They put away their idols. Apparently, the idols are not right out there visibly, but they're still worshipping the idols in their hearts. They're still praying to these idols internally, even though it's not external. They're still harboring false gods as they come to the true God for counsel. It's amazing. And it's early Old Testament proof that idolatry is not just an external behavior, but it is a very much an internal thing. Paul said in Ephesians 5.5, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. For the Lord, it is always a a heart matter because the heart always matters. And so God's answer to idolatry, be it external, be it internal, is always the same. His one word answer is repent. Repent. And it's not just turn from your idols, it's turn to me. And that's the issue. And I believe we've talked about this recently, there's really only one way to rid yourself of internal idolatry, and that's to fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. You turn away from the idol, but if you don't fill yourself with anything, you're susceptible to the same idolatry that you thought you left. You turn away from the idols, you turn away from the sin, and you turn to the Lord and allow Him to fill those places where once we held our idols. Romans 8.5, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. What about those people who reject the Spirit and who embrace these lies? Verse 9. Now note this, it's one of the toughest verses in the book of Ezekiel. In fact, before we finish tonight, and I know we're at an hour here, before we're done, dial in because there are two difficult things that we have to look at here. And this is the first one. Verse 9. If the prophet is prevailed upon to speak a word, it is I, the Lord, who have prevailed upon that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. They will bear the punishment of their iniquity as the iniquity of the inquirer is. So the iniquity of the prophet will be 
in order that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me and no longer defile themselves and all their tra- with all their transgressions. Thus they will be my people and I shall be their God, declares the Lord God. The simple answer, or the simple thing going on here is the person inquiring of the false prophet with a messed up heart and the false prophet are both going to be blamed for this. They both are sinning. Both the person going and the person bringing this false prophecy or the prophecy or this divination, they're both at fault. But the bigger problem here is this word prevailed upon in verse nine. It's pata in the Hebrew, and it means enticed, deceived, or persuaded. But it tends to be used in the negative, so enticed or deceived. Listen to it that way. If the prophet is enticed. To speak a word, it is I, the Lord, who have enticed that prophet. Or, if the prophet is deceived to speak a word, it is I, the Lord, who have deceived the prophet. What do we do with that? I mean, the Bible is very clear. God can't lie, right? I mean, right? Help me out here. Give me a little encouragement, right? He can't lie. He's, he's per, pure truth. Hebrews 6.18 says, By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that is, His character and His word, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. The reason why we have such a living hope is God doesn't lie. Everything he says is legitimate. Everything he says is true. But here, the Lord says, if the prophet is enticed to speak a word, I'm the one who enticed him. But Lord, you don't lie. Alright? James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So how does this work? The question is, what do you do with a heart that is already bent on deception? A heart that is already dialed in to destruction. A heart that has chosen rebellion. What do you do with that? Let me give you some examples. And these are troubling examples in Scripture. 1 Kings 22.20 We're told that Ahab is enticed by an evil spirit. Guess where the evil spirit came from? The Lord. The whole story is, God says, is there an evil spirit? Is there a spirit here who's willing to go on and down and, and entice Ahab? And an evil spirit says, I'll do it. And God says, go. <laughs> Another example, Exodus chapter 4 through 14. You see Pharaoh's heart being hardened by the Lord. And people read that and go, that's not fair. How, how is that fair that God's hardening Pharaoh's heart. And fourteen times we're told God hardened Pharaoh's. Actually, fourteen times we're told Pharaoh hardened his heart. The first seven times Pharaoh hardened it. The last seven times God hardened it. Because it was a heart that was already hard. Ahab was already enticed by his own evil. He was already there. And these hearts, and in this verse, the heart that is already bent on deception wants to be hard, and God says, so be it. If your heart's already hard, I'll honor the hardness of your heart. If your heart is already deceived, I will honor the deception of your heart. If you are out there enticing others by your false prophecies, I will entice you to entice them, because that's where your heart already is. See, we need to understand 
and this is bigger than us, that the justice of God, God is not mocked. You can't play games with Him. You can't say, my heart's going to be hard today, but maybe I'll show up at church tomorrow. God says, I know your heart. You can't show up at Ezekiel's door with a hard heart, with an idolatrous heart, and go, I'm going to play church. I'm going to sit here before Ezekiel the prophet and do a little you know, public relations so people will think I'm a good guy. And when I go out with my false prophecies and idolatry, then they'll follow me because i got Ezekiel behind me. God says, it's not going to work. I won't let it happen. There's a verse that flows with this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Some of you prophecy students know this. Paul warns that Antichrist is coming. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 10, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. In order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And again, the carnal mind would say that's not fair. It is fair. God is not mocked. It is totally fair. God does not lie. He does not tempt. And He does not override man's free will. And if I and my will say, I want to be deceived, then the Lord says, fine, be deceived. If I say, I want to be hard, the Lord says, fine, be hard. He doesn't override our free will. He honors it. 18th century English poet William Cowper wrote the following, Hear the just law, the judgment of the skies. He that hates truth must be the dupe of lies. And he who will be cheated to the last, delusions strong as hell must bind him fast. You see, the choice is already made in the heart. And God says, I will honor that choice. Now the chapter ends with an answer to those who think as long as there are still righteous men among us, the country will be fine. As long as Billy and Greg are doing their crusades, you know, as long as we've got a few preachers on TV and a few solid churches here and there, as long as there's a church on a corner somewhere, we're going to be fine. There are some righteous people out there. No worries, right? Wrong. Verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. If I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they depopulated it, and it became desolate, so that no one would pass through it because of the beasts. Though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. Or, if I should bring a sword on that country and say, let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beast from it. Even though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath in blood on it to cut off man and beast from it, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their son 
or their daughter, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. Job, Daniel, and Noah. This is remarkable for several reasons. For one thing, to be one of those named as righteous guys. That's that's an impressive list. I mean, Noah, who, who stood there as the last righteous man, standing for his family when all else had failed. The entire can you imagine being the last man standing with your fam in the whole world? Noah stood in the breach. Noah built up the wall of truth. Looked like a big boat, but he built it and climbed aboard. And you've got Daniel, who already note this. Daniel is contemporary with Ezekiel. He's been in the land a little bit longer than Ezekiel. He's already acclaimed for his righteousness and his truth. And Daniel is one of only a couple people in Scripture, aside from Jesus, who don't have a single sin listed against them. Joseph is another one. Daniel, you never hear of any of his sin. I'm sure he did. He was human. But he was a righteous man, and God calls out that righteousness. Job. Job's only problem was that he knew he was righteous. But he was a righteous man. And God calls out these three, and they all three have one thing in common. Do you know what that is? They were intercessors. All three of these men, three of the greatest intercessors in the history of the world. Job was interceding both for himself and later for his friends. Daniel interceded for his friends and then for his entire people. And then you have Noah who interceded for his family and ultimately for the whole planet before the flood. But the bottom line here is, and get this, and even even when this involves Pastor Les. Sorry, Les. I always pick on you. But Les prayed for me. Not good enough. These men were great intercessors, but there is no intercession that can deliver against the will of the individual. You can pray for people all you want, and should, by the way. Never stop praying for someone who rejects the Lord. Continue to pray, but until some aspect of the soil of their heart softens enough for a seed to get in, you can't change a heart. And God says, you can have these three men praying in the midst of the land of Israel and I would still wipe it out. I'll deliver them. But they couldn't even deliver their own sons and daughters. Job couldn't. They couldn't even deliver those closest to them. They could only deliver themselves by their righteousness. But here's the good news. We have an intercessor whose righteousness is enough to save everybody. We have a mediator, and his name is Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, There is one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Noah can't save the world. Daniel can't do it. Job can't do it. But Jesus can. And his righteousness is such that all who come to him will find salvation. For thus says the Lord, verse 21, How much more when I send my four severe judgments, and he's already listed them, against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague, to cut off man and beast from it. I won't go all into this right now, but all four of these judgments are mentioned by Moses in Leviticus 26, verses 22 through 26. And these, Moses said, will be the outcome of idolatry and rebellion. 
All four of these things, sword, famine, wild beast, and plague, and all four of these things hit Jerusalem in and after the conquest of Babylon. Verse 22. Now be sharp. This is the last difficult thing to understand. Yet, behold, survivors will be left in it who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Behold, they are going to come forth to you and you will see their conduct and actions and then you will be comforted for the calamity which I have brought against Jerusalem for everything which I have brought upon it. Then they will comfort you when you see their conduct and actions for you will know that I have not done in vain whatever I did to it declares the Lord God. These final exiles are people who rebelled against the Lord to stay in the land. So you need to understand their conduct and their actions are not good. They are not going to flood into Babylon in their exiled state preaching the glory and the goodness of God. What are they going to do? The exiles already in Babylon are going to see their brothers and sisters of Judah coming in. And they're going to see their conduct and actions. What actions? What conduct? They come into Babylon starved. They will come into Babylon bruised and battered and beaten down. They will come into Babylon with stories of horrific judgments. The judgment of sword and famine and beast and plague. They're going to come in an absolute tattered mess. They're going to come flooding in. That's the conduct and actions. These are the rebels of the rebels who tried to hold out to the last minute until the city was taken. These are those, some of whom stayed alive by eating their babies. These are those who fought till they couldn't fight anymore and were dragged off, still rebelling, still angry, torn up. And God says, you're going to see them and you will be comforted. What? How in the world does this bring comfort? And Jesus tells us, in Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How exactly does that work? Listen, only when we come to the point of actually mourning over our sinfulness are we ready to receive the comfort of God's grace. Only when we get there. Until we get there, we don't really get grace. Until we understand the depth of our depravity, and how bad it really was before Jesus drew us in, we don't fully comprehend, and therefore we're not fully comforted. But when we come to Jesus mourning over our fallen state, mourning over our sinfulness, He pours out His grace, and there is nothing more comforting than that. David bit his tongue two days ago. Little David, five years old, chewing on a carrot, bit his tongue in four places. And it's just bleeding. And this, he does this all the time. This is the second time. Right before we went on vacation, he bit his tongue. Just about bit it off and blood's pouring out and I'm running around the house. Cheryl's not home. You know, what do I do? I don't know what to do. Where's Cheryl? She knows what to do. Dr. Mom, call Dr. Mom. I don't know what to do. Well, yesterday Cheryl was home or two days ago, thankfully. Bites his tongue 
four places and he is just oh he's just weeping and the blood's pouring and he's just, and it's, it's hurting bad and Cheryl gave him a popsicle but it was one of those healthy ones you know it's got like seeds and goo in it well that made his tongue sting and I said well when he bit his tongue before I didn't give him something like that you know what I'm doing here you know what he needed more than anything else? He was weeping, he was mourning, he was in pain, he was in crisis, and he needed comfort. And the most important thing we did for David, uh, you know, after the ice, was holding him. Stroking his fuzzy little head and saying, it's got to be okay, you're going to be alright, hang in there. You know, and he just cried. <laughs> you know how kids will do. But he was comforted in his mourning. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. And I'll tell you one thing, you don't have to act out. But one way that you can be a sign in these times is letting people know how much comfort you received when you realized how sinful you really were. The comfort of God's grace. And Jesus, we thank You for Your grace. And we are recipients of it, Lord. A people who on our own would be absolutely devastated and lost. But You comfort us in our mourning. You tell us it's okay. You soothe us, Father. You hold us. And you tell us by the righteousness of Jesus Christ we are saved. Praise your name. Thank you for this comfort. And Father, I pray we will wear this comfort on our sleeves. And with this comfort, we ourselves will be used by you to bring the comfort of your grace to others. In Jesus' name, amen.